0: We may not nationwide or worldwide be suffering from the death of our imagination, but I think we are in a time of what I call an imagination deficit disorder, where we're suffering from a challenge of being able to imagine a hopeful and life-giving future, and where we're caught in what feels like an endless present that all too often leads to a nostalgia for a never-existing past.
1: Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. In this episode, we bring you a plenary address delivered by L. Gregory Jones, president of Belmont University, featured at Acton University 2022. For too many people, the future isn't what it used to be. In the midst of dealing with multiple pandemics, people have gotten stuck in old patterns and become increasingly fearful. How do we rediscover a hopeful future? Dr. Jones argues that we need to cultivate a fresh and entrepreneurial mindset, linked to virtuous character and purpose that will refocus on cultivating life that really is life. How can we navigate toward a future of human flourishing? One of rediscovered virtue entrepreneurship, and devotion to God. Dr. Jones offers an inspiring way forward. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, and Spotify.
2: Now it's my pleasure to introduce tonight's keynote speaker. I only met Dr. Gregory Jones in 2018, although his reputation had preceded him. I kept encountering people I deeply respected who asked if I knew Greg Jones. He was described several times to me as one of the most important thinkers in the character education space, a space of interest to us at Acton. So I invited Greg to come to Grand Rapids and speak to the entire Acton team. I can tell you we were very impressed by not only his knowledge, but also the deep respect with which he engaged Acton and our team, thoughtfully working to make intellectual and philosophical connections between our work and his work. And ironically, within minutes of him speaking to Acton Institute that day, he received a promotion professionally. So Greg, we can't wait to see what happens tomorrow. Now Greg is well published with 19 books to his name, a theologian. He's built an excellent reputation as a leader in the higher educational space. In addition to leadership positions in the past at Baylor and Duke, today he serves as president of Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. His leadership has also earned him important positions in philanthropy, and he sits on the board of the John Templeton Foundation and the McDonald Agape Foundation. Now, before I let him come up here, I do have a small story about Greg that I cannot resist. When he was dean of Duke Divinity School the first time, he was preaching all over the country, and at one point he was invited to preach at an Episcopal church in Virginia. They sent him a message asking, What is your title? Now a natural preacher of good Methodist stock, Greg reflected on his topic. He would be preaching about the time in John's gospel when Mary anointed Jesus' feet with expensive perfume and dried his feet with her hair. So he replied to the Episcopal Church that his title would be Extravagant Holiness. Now, being Episcopalians... They were asking a different question, and the first draft of the worship bulletin said, we're pleased to welcome his extravagant holiness, (laughs) Dean Gregory Jones, as our preacher this morning. Now having gotten to know Greg over the last four years through his writings, but more through numerous personal encounters, the title is, well, well, somewhat unusual, not wrong in substance. So would you please join me in welcoming His Extravagant Holiness, (laughs) President Gregory Jones. Thanks, Chris.
0: Thank you, Chris. After an introduction like that, it's all downhill from here. It's a great joy to be with you uh, this evening. I've had great admiration for Chris and for the work of the Acton Institute and Acton University. It's a great privilege to be with you this evening. To say that we've been through a rough couple of years is an understatement. I sometimes refer to multiple pandemics, COVID-19 and so many other dynamics that have been afflicting us that have caused it caused us all to be on our heels in a reactive mode, just waiting for what's the day's news gonna be that disrupts us or challenges us even more. Chris outlined in the context of some of the international contexts and people like you who are doing heroic work day in and day out. The reality though is as hard as the last two years have been with COVID, most of the underlying issues we're struggling with have been in existence for a lot longer than the last two years. Indeed, even the COVID-19 pandemic is afflicted by how we have responded and by the weakness of the institutions and networks that could have helped us cope with that more easily and better and more faithfully. Indeed, we find ourselves in this time of being bewildered. In biblical terms, we might even call it in the wilderness. There is a book in the Christian Bible that Christians know as Numbers. In the Jewish tradition, it's often been called in the wilderness. I suspect if that was the title for Christians, it might be read more frequently, (laughs) rather than giving Christians some kind of post-traumatic stress reaction of that time in your life when you realize math was no longer for you. (laughs) But in the book, at a pivotal point in chapters 13 and 14, Moses sends out 12 spies to go spy out the promised land. And they come back. And they have a majority report and a minority report. The majority report says, oh, it's a land flowing with milk and honey and we ought to be focused there. But there are creatures, they look like giants and we look like grasshoppers. There's no way we can deal with all those obstacles. We would better go back to Egypt. Only two of the 12 spies, Joshua and Caleb, say it's a land flowing with milk and honey and we ought to trust that if God is calling us there, God will lead us through the obstacles and God will lead us there. Well, after that, you know the story. The Israelites vote, and they chant, let's go back to Egypt. Egypt was suffering. Egypt was slavery. Egypt was oppression. But Egypt was familiar. My father used to say that every organization he ever was a part of had a back to Egypt committee in it looking at the future, looking at what we were called to be about, looking at the promised land, looking at an idea of what it would mean to support human flourishing and the common good and religious liberty and free markets and all of the things that enable people to flourish. Too often, we look at the obstacles and say, let's retreat. Let's go back to that which is familiar. The truth of the matter is every one of us has a back to Egypt part of our souls. That whenever we're sensing a calling to be courageous, to live faithfully, to lean into the future, we retreat and get scared. We panic. Anxiety sets in. The Jewish writer Aviva Zornberg, in her book Bewilderments, a great book on, on the topic of the book of Numbers, Because bewilderments is so often the predicament that the people find themselves in. And we live in a time, as Chris noted in his introduction, that is challenging. Where it is bewildering to know what it is we're for and how to lean into the future. How to navigate the future with a sense of hopefulness. Amidst what often feels like, at best, dense fog. And so Zornberg is reflecting on the bewilderments. And when she reflects on that passage from Numbers 13 and 14... She had a sentence. She wrote a sentence that when I read it, it just caused me to stop dead in my tracks. Here's what she said When the Israelites decide they want to go back to Egypt, they suffer a death worse than physical death, the death of their imagination. A death worse than physical death, the death. ...of their imagination. a Haunting phrase. And yet a powerful one, especially for us in 2022. As we reflect on world events and as we look at the, the brokenness and divisions... ...and the repression and the suffering and the rise of authoritarian regimes... ...and their brutality... ...we can get on our heels and get in a reactive mode... We may not, nationwide or worldwide, be suffering from the death of our imagination, but I think we are in a time of what I call an imagination deficit disorder, where we're suffering from a challenge of being able to imagine a hopeful and life-giving future, and where we're caught in what feels like an endless present that all too often leads to a nostalgia for a never-existing past? How can we navigate the future and look toward the future with that sense of hope and joy, with that sense of life and vitality and fullness? How can we point to what enables human flourishing, your flourishing and mine and ours and the broader world's flourishing? If we're gonna do that, we're gonna have to embark on a rediscovery. Part of what it involves in terms of that rediscovery is, in the first place, a rediscovery of an entrepreneurial mindset. It's about being an entrepreneur, but not everybody's called to that. Entrepreneurship is actually a team sport. It's an entrepreneurial mindset that's focused on the future and on possibilities and that continues to believe that the future can be brighter than the brokenness of the past. The great hockey player, Wayne Gretzky, was once asked what made him a great hockey player. He said, most hockey players skate to where the puck is. I skate to where the puck is going next. Too often in our world, we find people skating to where the puck once was, or where they wish it was. It's hard enough to get them even to focus on where the puck is. And an entrepreneurial mindset's always focused on the future, always being called into that sense of future with a sense of hope. It's not easy to be an optimist these days. It's always possible to be hopeful. Because hope is rooted in who God is. Optimism is rooted in who we are. An entrepreneurial mindset linked to classical liberal economics has that sense that we can continue to find creative solutions. And unleashing that entrepreneurial mindset will generate greater wealth and reduce poverty. We can find enterprise solutions to poverty. And there are great examples of that all around the world, and yet not well enough connected to generate a really transformational movement. We need that entrepreneurial mindset that can lift people out of poverty, that can be connected to that sense of individual liberty and creativity, that can find creative solutions to complex problems. And we need to rediscover that entrepreneurial mindset as a way of fostering that imagination ...that stays focused on the future. In order to do so, we're going to need a second rediscovery... ...and that's a rediscovery of transcendence. A rediscovery of God. Charles Taylor's description of the modern world in the West is haunting in his book, A Secular Age. I don't really recommend you read that book because it's 900 pages of often turgid prose. But Jamie Smith at Calvin University wrote a little book called How Not to Be Secular. It's a lot easier. It's about 140 pages of readable prose. But as Jamie summarizes Taylor's argument it's this at the beginning of modernity nobody was an atheist everybody assumed there was a God if you weren't sure that God was active in the world you tended to be a deist and just thought in clockmaker terms everybody assumed there was a God the question was how was God active in the world and what Taylor says now at the end of modernity in the West everybody essentially is an atheist even those who believe in God or profess a belief in God live and act as if there's no God. It's a haunting judgment. The Catholic activist Dorothy Day once said she wanted to live her life in a way that wouldn't make sense if God doesn't exist. The truth of the matter is my life makes way too much sense on a daily basis regardless of whether there is a God and we need to rediscover that sense of God that is active in the world that is helping to foster that entrepreneurial mindset that cares about individual dignity, that cares about human flourishing, and that we need to recover that sense of miracles happening across religious traditions, a belief that God is present. It continues to haunt us, whether that's in the West or in the majority majority world, in different contexts. The writer Julian Barnes, British writer, had a wonderful memoir he's a great writer the memoir has an ironic title called nothing to be frightened of it's ironic because he's actually quite frightened as he was turning 70 years old he realized that he had his best years behind him and that he was going to be part, starting a period of physical and mental decline and he was wondering if he'd really ever written what he wanted to write if he was leaving any kind of legacy so the truth of the matter was, as he was looking at a period of decline, he was terribly frightened, and he was trying to reassure himself that there's really nothing to be frightened of. The first line of his book is a haunting one. He says, I don't believe in God, comma, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, comma, but I miss him rediscovering that power of the transcendent, whether as a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim, a Hindu, whatever the particular faith tradition, calls us beyond ourselves to believe that there is a telos, that there is a purpose to human life. There is a purpose to the created order. Ironically, at a time when scientists are discovering a purposefulness in the natural world and in natural conditions and in among animals, we find a crisis where nihilism is far too prevalent and it masks itself with authoritarian repression. Too many people these days live as if, as Nicholas Lash put it, life is an absurd nightmare with no meaning at all. Perhaps that's why in the US we see a rise in various mental health challenges, depression, isolation anxiety suicide ideation we've lost that sense of the transcendent of a god who is calling us beyond ourselves a god who's calling us to a promised land and saying wherever your circumstances whatever your conditions you can rise above them you can move beyond them and you can bear witness to what first timothy 6 calls life that really is life for many of us for those of you from china and venezuela ukraine and various places around the world in the face of religious oppression that often has a very concrete cost and yet it's a sense that we are called beyond ourselves in extraordinary ways to bear witness and that witness has a powerful impact i'll never forget when i took my then 12 year old son on a visit to auschwitz It was a horrific day for us, and I wondered if I should have really taken a 12-year-old there. It was when we visited the prison of Maximilian Kolbe, the person who sacrificed his own life so so that a Jewish person could live. And my son immediately said, do you think there are any books about him in the gift shop? Because as Chris was talking about the lives of the saints as footnotes to the gospel or as you think about holy people in any religious tradition, there's a way in which it has a compelling vision that points to the reality of God because it's lives that wouldn't make sense apart from God. We need to rediscover that transcendence, and that discovery of transcendence will also link us to that entrepreneurial mindset. Third, we need to rediscover a normative vision of what it means to be human that is linked to the virtues of character. Religious liberty is linked to what, as Chris was suggesting from Lord Acton, enables us to do what we ought, to rise to the noblest part of who we are, That sense of a commitment to character and to virtue is what inspires and enables us to see possibilities. It's linked to that sense of the transcendent. It's linked to that entrepreneurial mindset. And it creates virtuous spirals in which we flourish and others flourish as well. Former President Teddy Roosevelt was noted for saying, a leader without character is a menace to society. We have far too many leaders these days, all around the world, lacking in character, seeing the opportunities for leadership, not in terms of service and enabling the common good, not in terms of solving complex problems with creative solutions, not in ways of bringing people together to cultivate meaningful disagreements and life abundant, but rather in the naked pursuit of power we need to rediscover a normative vision of what it means to be human that's rooted in that normative vision of transcendence that enables that entrepreneurial mindset. When all of them are working together, we begin to see those virtuous spirals in our own lives and in the broader community as well. Well, there's a fourth rediscovery we need that we don't often pay enough attention to And it may at first blush sound like it's at odds with individual liberty because of the ways in which we've come to talk about the language of institutions. We think about institutionalizing something as stifling creativity and entrepreneurship and stifling virtue, stifling and creating bureaucracy. That's a distorted notion of institutions. Indeed, institutions are necessary. Healthy institutions are necessary to enable an entrepreneurial mindset, to enable that sense of transcendence, and to enable that discovery of what it means to be human and to cultivate virtue. The scholar Yuval Levine at the American Enterprise Institute came out with a book right as the pandemic began, and so his book didn't get the attention it deserves. It's called A Time to Build. He's reflecting on the American context. And he said, we're suffering in America, I would say the broader West, and there are different versions of it in the majority world. We're suffering from a crisis of healthy institutions. You might think of it this way. Healthy institutions are like offensive linemen in American football. You only really notice them when they're fouling up. And that's why we're noticing them so often. Healthy institutions, Levine says are molds of character. He said, when we talk about institutions in the West these days, we talk about them more as platforms for celebrity. So we don't deal with them at all to really shore them up and strengthen them. And when we do, we turn them into platforms for celebrity when they ought to be molds for character. That ought to be true of all of our educational institutions, our religious institutions, our economic institutions, our political ones. The question is not whether we're going to have institutions or not. The question is, are we going to have healthy ones? And they're necessary if we're going to be able to rediscover a normative vision of character and what it means to be human, a vision of transcendence, and the cultivation of an entrepreneurial mindset. I was reading a book about the early days of Silicon Valley, and it talked about how it was in Silicon Valley a network of creative individuals and institutions coming together to create networks that enabled that dense geography to generate genius kinds of breakthroughs and economic flourishing in so many other ways. Well, that's true also of the spread of early Christianity in the early centuries of the gospel. Some of the best institutions were created out of that movement in the early decades and centuries. If you ask the question as my colleague and friend Kevin Rowe did in his little book, Christianity Surprise, the question, how did Christianity go from 5,000 followers of Jesus in the year 50 to 5 million two centuries later? It has to do with being impelled by a vision of an entrepreneurial mindset. And a sense of transcendence empowered by the resurrection and a commitment to the formation of virtue and character that led to the founding of new forms of schooling, of orphanages, of healthcare institutions, the first hospitals in the history of the world founded as a result of that vision, so that institutions were part of the vibrancy That led Julian, the apostate, the Roman emperor in the 4th century to say, these nasty Galileans, by which he meant followers of Jesus, are making us look bad. We better try to mimic what they're doing because they're attracting too many followers. Well, he had the form, but not the content. He had a technique, but not the underlying convictions and practices that undergird those of us who are gathered here at the Acton University. That sense of an entrepreneurial mindset and transcendence and character and institutions that matter, that enable life abundant, that enable that sense of flourishing and that sense of the common good. What I admire so much about the Acton Institute and Acton University is the cultivation of a new institution to enable these intersections, to help to create the networks and the movement not only across the United States, but indeed across the world. One of the people that Chris and I have had the privilege of getting to know who's a friend of Acton University and has spoken here is a guy named Kim Tan. He's an extraordinary person, originally from Malaysia lives outside of London. He started as a chemist, and built a biotech company, sold it, started writing checks as a philanthropist and realized that he could write checks for the rest of his life and not make a dent into poverty. And so what he did was bring his best entrepreneurial skills and his vision of transcendence as a follower of Jesus and his sense of character to start a number of projects social impact investing, in education, in the environment, in business. 40 plus projects around the world, working with partners that he's himself developed. His new globe education, the Bridge Academies, now have two million children in low cost education, mostly in Africa, now spreading to India. And a recent study came out showing that there was a two X, 200% improvement in the children's learning, born out of that conjunction of a vision of what it means to flourish, a deep compassion for those who need to be brought out of poverty. It's an enterprise set of solutions to poverty. He's an extraordinary entrepreneur and social impact investor with a deep sense of transcendence and that character. You ask him what he looks for in an entrepreneur, the first thing he'll tell you, humility. He said, if you have a person with humility, they'll care about the right things for the right reason. If they lack humility, they'll be in it for all the wrong reasons, even if they have all the other skills. It's about these intersections. But it's not only about the projects and the institutions that he's building in countries around the world. He also launched the Transformational Business Network to bring people of faith together to encourage and inspire this vision. Because if we can create the networks of relationships, if we can build the institutions and the networks together, too often we pit institutions and networks over against each other and somehow position them over against individual liberty. When they're healthy, they're all working together to create multiplier effects. And that's what we need to be about. Here at Acton University, the Acton Institute, we need to be cultivating that in higher education networks. We need to be cultivating through things like the Transformational Business Network. Because it's when people see these kinds of projects and see these kinds of opportunities that we can counter the nihilism and the bureaucracy and the destructiveness of alternative visions. We can counter the authoritarian repression to create a free and virtuous society that enables people to flourish. And that's what we ought to be cultivating. It's extraordinary when you see people who not only do these things themselves, they also create networks and they create that kind of impact. What would it take for us to see religious people becoming surprising again, noted not for what we're against, but what we're for? Helping to inspire and cultivate and energize a younger generation to see the power of religious faith at work. Greg Boyle's a Jesuit priest out in South Central LA who started Homeboy Industries to get kids out of gangs and into more gainful employment. His motto is The best way to stop a bullet is with a job. When I was at Duke, he came to speak. And if I had a dollar for every time an undergraduate came up after I'd done an interview with them and said, oh, if that's what Christianity is, sign me up. They saw somebody. And more importantly, it's when they see whole communities and institutions bearing witness to their faith in ways that preserve and honor and extend individual liberty, that have an entrepreneurial mindset and inspire and enable economic flourishing for all because it's rooted in sound economics, when it's rooted in a vision of the transcendent, you can see the imminent frame of this world breaking through with the light of God. It's all when we see all these things come together. It's about storytelling and reclaiming that sense of a story. Part of the loss of transcendence in the rise of nihilism is a sense that there isn't really a coherent story with a coherent beginning and a coherent end. And too often, we've let the stories be told by the nihilists and the authoritarians, rather than bringing our best sense of storytelling to show what happens when life is lived at its best. Some of the films that Acton does, I like to watch and show to others just because they make you feel good and they give you a sense that people really are good and can do amazing things together, even in the midst of a pandemic and beyond. And beyond. I have a friend who's now living in Rwanda. She's actually from Burundi. She was made to watch as 70 members of her family and friends were killed in the the Burundian Civil War in the mid 90s. But when her life was spared, she said, We're going to rebuild this community. She had an entrepreneurial spirit. She found seven children her mother was raising. She's never had any children of her own. She's never been married. A faithful Catholic woman. She said, we're going to call this village Maison Shalom. It's in one of the rural, most rural areas of one of the poorest countries of the world. And she began to build a whole new network and institution. Thousands of children, of orphans. She raised Eventually, when by the time I met her in the mid-2000s, she was employing 650 people, 400 of whom were children she had raised. She had built a swimming pool over the site of the massacre. She said she wanted the children's eyes to be cleansed by the water of the swimming pool like the water of baptism. She built a morgue next to her house in the center of the village. She said, if we don't care for those who've recently died, we won't know how to care for those who've lived She started microfinance and agriculture to give opportunities for growth and that entrepreneurial mindset. I knew that she prayed for an hour every afternoon. She was so centered in that transcendent vision. She wanted people to flourish. When I met her, when she came to the U.S. a number of years later, I had heard she'd started new programs of Maison Shalom in Eastern Congo and in Southern Rwanda. And I said, Maggie, why do you keep starting new ventures? She said, there are children who need love. I was getting ready to ask some business-minded questions about expansion, and then I realized the more questions I'd ask, the more I'd just be digging a hole. Because when you ask Maggie why she does what she does, this is what she says. Love made me an inventor. Love made me an inventor. She doesn't mean Hallmark Love or valentine's day love she means love rooted in who god is she's talked about the horrific memory she has of watching 70 members of her family and friends be brutally murdered with machetes and yet she's risen above that she's moved beyond that rooted in her sense of god's love it's made her an inventor and she's become a transformational leader who inspires me every day She's now living in exile in Rwanda because while the Burundian president at one point called her the mother of the country for all of her educational work, eventually she got so popular and was having so much impact, he declared her a threat to his rule and put an assassination hit on her. So she fled in the trunk of a car to Rwanda, where she now lives. I saw her at a conference and I got my best pastoral kind of look on my face and best pastoral voice to go over, and I said, Maggie, how are you? She gave me a big bear hug of an embrace. She said, Greg, you can't stop God's love. I thought, oh, yes, you can. I do it with some regularity. (laughs) And then she told me about how in Kigali she'd started training refugees in English skills so they could go to college And she had bought a hotel and a conference center and was using the proceeds from the hotel to fund the work in the conference center. She then asked me for a donation. She knows how to raise money. Whether it's Maggie or Kim Tan or the work those of you who are doing in your local context, whether in the United States, in China, in Ukraine, in Venezuela, all around the world, we need to be about rediscovering imagination, and an entrepreneurial mindset, that sense of transcendence and the power of God's love, that sense of character and of humility that keeps us focused on the things that matter, and renewing and cultivating networks and institutions that can create the multiplier effects and create the kind of impact that can inspire and enable us to lead and navigate the future even in the midst of a dense fog in faithful, exciting, and effective ways. Let's go forth from this week and let love make all of us inventors.
3: Well, What a terrific way to kick off Acton University. What a great talk. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Jones. Thank you. Yes. So I'd like to remind everyone that we do have uh, questions submitted through Slido, which I will then be uh, receiving on my phone. And then uh, we'll spend about the next 15 minutes or so uh, with Q&A. So we'll try to get as many questions through as we can. So here's the first question uh, that comes It says, how do we relate, let's see, how do we relate faith and reason through the exercise of virtues in times where people embrace chaos, over order. So how do we relate faith and reason through the exercise of virtues in times where people embrace chaos over order?
0: Hmm. Leading off with a softball. <laughs> That's right. Um, well, the more faith and, and reason and virtue we have, the more we'll able to diagnose in a particular moment what's required. And what 's enabled for us, I think part of the crisis we have culturally uh, in the West and in different ways it presents itself differently in the majority world um, is that we're we 're suffering from a, a lack of real formation in virtue that could cultivate the kind of practical wisdom that you, you know what to do in the moment, mm. and so the chaos is both a consequence and a continuation of uh, us not doing that very well, Um, which is, you know, it starts pre-K and K-12 and higher education. I'm part of the problem, you know, as as an educator. I think that what we're called to do is to be about discernment in uh, and cultivating friendships where we can find opportunities to bear witness and to do that in uh, surprising ways. I think, you know, these days I say what we really need to cultivate are unlikely friendships. Uh, Because friendships help nurture us in those virtues, and it's when you discover somebody with whom you don't think you have a lot in common that you can cultivate some of that virtue, and it can help to nurture um, creativity rather than chaos. Uh, And that's where I find the the greatest hope. And, you know, I also just think that part of it is uh, making sure we walk the walk and not just talk the talk.
3: That's great. You know, you mentioned friendships, which, by the way, uh, the book uh, co-authored with Andrew Hogue, Ma- Navigating the Future, is fabulous. Uh, you want to hear more great stories, pick up a copy of that book, just fabulous stories in that book. In fact, one of them you alluded to, uh, Sergio and in Homeboy Industries, I must admit, did put a knot in my throat. That, that, was, a, that was an inspiring one. So, you know, with friendships, you mentioned uh, you know, unlikely friendships. And then you also referred to something, uh, I think, uh, friendships that are basically holy, Holy friendship. So what are the distinctions here? What, what would one give you that another wouldn't per se and vice versa?
0: Well, my wife and I formed the phrase holy friendships when we think about people that are our most uh, important formative friendships. Those are, uh, we have three phrases that we, we talk about. They help us dream dreams we otherwise wouldn't have dreamed, challenge the sins we've come to love, and affirm gifts we're afraid to claim. Hmm. Those have to be relationships that, that are deep because on all three fronts, we get good at playing games and deceiving ourselves and deceiving others. And so what we call holy friendships are those intimate relationships that, um, that are sustained on a regular basis over time. Unlikely friendships can become a holy friendship, but it's, those are more um, where you're getting to know each other and where the listening is engaging and you discover they're really making me think differently about things I hadn't thought about before. Mm. And so unlikely friendships are those, whether they're international or whether they're from different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds or different religious traditions or different political beliefs, they're the ones where you kind of have to pause and say, I need to think about that more. And it takes you more time uh, to do that. I think, you know, in our world, we and, and social media and everything else, we've too often uh, narrowed uh, quite severely the number of people we're interacting with on any kind of regular basis. We have, you know, what, what sometimes sociologists describe as the difference between our uh, our core group, uh, which turns out if you look at cell phone logs, like 95% of our cell phone uh, logs are, are with five people, <laughs> uh, you know, friends and, and family. And then we have Facebook friends, you know, that are in the thousands. What's missing is that, what Paul Dunbar calls that, that 150 number. Um, and those are the people that actually begin to form us. And that was part of what civic virtue, uh, really depended on in significant ways, or what some are calling middle ring relationships. Not the intimate, not the, the, the casual, but those formative relationships. And that's where we need a lot more unlikely friendships. So those unlikely friendships,
3: I suppose, in some way, might they help with this thing you refer to as moral imagination and cultivating that? Absolutely.
0: Kind of Absolutely.
3: So I noticed that several times you traced certain virtues to, uh, to moral imagination yeah. and, and cultivating that. Uh, in your book, you uh, specify three, which I found were particularly interesting, the virtues of curiosity, hope, and humility each one of which you touched on in your talk. Could you, could you unpack those a little bit more? Why those specifically, curiosity, hope, and humility to help with imagination?
0: Well, curiosity is that what you might talk about as a growth mindset, that there's always more to learn. Mm. Um, And, you know, I I spent a summer once reading all of Augustine's sermons, which was wonderful, uh, just as an aside. One of my favorite lines ever in a sermon, Augustine says, um, he's talking to people, on regular Sunday morning, he says, now I notice, you know, that you've read that Jesus says you're supposed to pray for your enemies and that's good. He said, but I noticed that you're praying they'll die. He says, I don't (laughs) think that's what Jesus meant. And I thought, oh, people aren't that different now than they were then. Um, but, um, along the way there was this sense that, uh, that Augustine said, you know, uh, he was talking about a particular passage. He said, I've never been able to understand it. I just keep trying to learn and keep learning. And I thought, okay, if one of the you know, handful of most intellectually brilliant people in the history of the Western world still thought he needed to be curious and keep learning, um, there's probably a lot of room for me. You know, First Corinthians says, we, we see through a glass, but dimly. Mm. And that notion that, so, so it should keep us curious. And that's linked also to humility. Um, that you know, there, humility doesn't say we don't see at all. It says we see, but we don't see everything. Mm. And I was really struck in talking to Kim Tan, and part of the reason I invoked him was I didn't really think that when he was looking on straight kind of uh, business bottom line, is this project gonna work, that the first thing he looks for is humility. And I thought, wow, you know, cause that you, you can see and you can see examples of all kinds of businesses where they might have a rapid rise, but if the person. Uh, is a narcissist, they also have a rapid decline. Things tend to go awry. Um, And then hope, as I suggested uh, a little bit in my talk, I think is so importantly different from optimism. It keeps us oriented toward the future, um, but not because of who I am or who you are or who is leading us at any particular time because they'll always disappoint us because we're human. Um, Hope is rooted in who God is and it keeps calling us uh, to the future.
3: Terrific. I have another one coming in from Slido uh, related to to the imagination, in this case, entrepreneurship. And the question is, or the statement is, the term entrepreneurship is used quite often, but doesn't the data show that true innovation is actually in steep decline? This seems like a marketing coup. That's the statement. So, could you respond? A marketing to that? what? A marketing coup. Coup. So, uh, so it's you know entrepreneurship is emphasized, but data seems to show that true innovation is actually in steep decline. Or at least that's the question. Is that the case? Are you aware, perhaps?
0: Um, well, a lot of it depends on definitions and things, but I would say that uh, I, I mean part of why I said we suffer from an imagination deficit disorder is people are, are less likely to try. Um, a, a recent book by Safi Bakal uh, called Loonshots not just moonshots but loonshots are the kind of thing where when, when somebody first presents the idea you think oh that could never happen um, and then sure enough it actually happens but it requires a kind of persistence, perseverance. It requires virtues. And I think that actually the conjunction of true innovation with true character, that's what's gonna endure and, and last. And that's where the imagination has to be able to see. I'm reading a biography of Walt Disney, hmm. uh, you know, and, and you, you, we sometimes naturalize things rather than, and, and think, well, that's been around forever. Well, no, actually in 1920, it didn't exist. Disneyland, hmm. Mickey Mouse, none of those things. Um, and, and so you say, well, where are the, where is that kind of innovation, and where is that kind of imagination? I prefer the, I, I use the term entrepreneurial mindset rather than entrepreneurship because sometimes we think that entrepreneurship is this lone guy like Mark Zuckerberg in his garage. Entrepreneurship's a team sport, and innovation can happen in large organizations that become transformed Uh, so it's not always starting something from scratch and nor is it just one individual doing something by themselves we need a recovery of that kind of culture and that mindset i think part of the problem is the loss of institutional strength and those networks and relationships also tend to discourage transformational innovation we've got a culture now that's that's afraid of risk um, and afraid of the kind of loon shot and afraid of the big, bold ideas. And, you know, philanthropy doesn't help because philanthropy's much better at wanting a three-year or a four-year program that stays within the swim lanes rather than something that could fail but also could have transformational impact. Now, now in your
3: talk, you integrated a lot of uh, faith uh stories and so forth. And individuals have sometimes asked the question of whether or not we can incorporate and bring into these ideas people who have no faith. And so one of the questions we have uh, from the audience is, how can we reach out and include atheists in our movement?
0: Well, I like to use the term faith animated because it kind of harkens to Disney and animation, but faith animated means faith undergirds and it brings it to life. What I've discovered is when you don't lead with explicit kind of talk, you have to believe this, you have to believe that, you actually just are giving rise to it, that undergirding strength. You can inspire people. Greg Boyle inspires atheists all the time. So does Kim Tan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so does Maggie. Um, you know, I, uh, I had the privilege of, of uh, being with Maggie at Duke the same weekend she was getting an honorary deg- degree from Duke and I was her sponsor the same weekend that Melinda Gates was getting an honorary degree uh, from Duke, and after Maggie talked, Melinda Gates came over and said, "I need to learn from you." now i 'm not sure Melinda would call herself an atheist, but she 's certainly not a practicing uh, believer of anything in, in any specific sort of way. I think she was raised nominally Catholic. But she was inspired by Maggie, by her story, by her vision, and she said, "I want to learn from you." And Maggie didn 't say, "Well, you have to be a Christian to be part of my work." she said Maggie said, "Great let 's get together." You know, in that in that sort of way, and so I think of faith animating and inspiring. Uh, I've been working with a with a great storyteller from uh, uh, L.A. He's he was former se- senior vice president of content at DreamWorks, so he was Steven Spielberg and Jeffrey Katzenberg's right hand man. Did Shrek, uh, How to Train Your Dragon, all these kinds mm-hmm. of movies, and he does it from a perspective of faith. But you wouldn't know that because those are just great stories. Than, and he's an amazing leader. And he does it in a way that it undergirds and strengthens and supports, but he doesn't have to make it explicit.
3: That's terrific. I have another question coming in that says, Sir John Templeton often wrote about the need for spiritual innovation. Yeah. Beyond our spiritual institutions and networks, do spiritual beliefs need to innovate? Do spiritual beliefs need to innovate?
0: It's a great question. And Sir John, uh, I've read so much of his writings uh, and they're, they're complicated. But what I would say is that there's always new insights to be found. And I think that was the heart of his uh, spiritual innovation. I think in different religious traditions, there is an openness. I cultivate a phrase uh, called traditioned innovation, um, which is about that where we're going to always be in the future, you're drawing from the past. Now, in the Christian tradition, you talk about the work of the Holy Spirit as making all things new. Um, In Jewish tradition, there's Kabbalah and there are other kinds of things. In Islam, there are other uh, ways of thinking about that. It's an ongoing tension. And so there's always an innovation. The difference is innovation that's, uh, sometimes people talk about innovation as if it's making stuff up and that's crazy uh that's like a middle school band concert nobody wants to go to it you know <laughs> real innovations always drawing on the best of the past and there's a there's a real holding together of that intention and so yes there's always an inclination toward spiritual innovation but it shouldn't just be oh i'm going to just make some stuff up tomorrow uh, in the kinds of ways that uh, sometimes have been kind of, well, you can get satire of it, but the, uh, Robert Bella and his colleagues 40 years ago talked about a woman who said, my religion is Sheilaism. it's just me. And I thought, no, that's solipsism and narcissism, not faith.
3: Absolutely. Well, we have time for about one more question. So here's one that has come in that says, Christians need to show what they're for that makes sense and needing a vision and and needing to cast a vision and live compellingly. But in this age, won't we be noted for what we're against in this age? Won't we be noted for what we're against?
0: I think if you look at, I mean, I, I would say that this age is challenging, but so was the early church. And what I would say is that there were plenty of things that, uh, that Christians were against uh, in, in the early church, uh, infanticide being one of many things. But it was always set so compellingly in the context of what they were for, that what worried Julian, the apostate, wasn't what Christians were against, it was they were doing so many things that people were like, oh wow, look at that, and look at that. And once you see what you're for, what you're, the, the reasons for what you're against actually become more compelling. So that if we lead with what we're against, we get into division and we get into just arguments back and forth. If we're so busy uh, starting ways of enabling people to flourish and helping people uh, change their lives and doing compelling work and creating jobs and all those kinds of opportunities, people get swept up into it because there's a generation, there's a, a generativity and an excitement. And I think then people say, well, I don't want to do that. If we start with you don't want to do that, do you, then people are going to have a hard time uh getting to the point of well what's what's the vision what am i wanting what am I being drawn toward you know the 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 best way when my father died forty years ago um I was overwhelmed with grief and I just started to shut down and close in on myself and in this age, what we're a lot doing is hunkering down with like minded people and getting into into bunkers the people that that were the best at helping me get to a new place where people who just said, hey, come on, let's go do this, let's go do that. They drew me into something that they were for and excited about. They didn't wanna just talk to me about my grief. They were drawing me out. And then once I got drawn out and I had all this new energy, they'd say, how you doing about your dad's death? And it was a whole different context. And there was a whole different energy when we're in a hopeful environment and you see the opportunities and you see the energy and you get caught up in it, um, then something different happens. And I think that's where the transformational opportunity happens. And why I think that focusing on uh, individual liberty and free markets and the kind of vision of human flourishing, it's when people see human flourishing and they wanna be part of it. And then there's an energy, and then you can focus on the other things that might diminish or destroy or divide. Thank
3: you so much for kicking off our Acton University return to person. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Gregory Jones.
1: As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of. If you're familiar with our past content or have attended an Acton event, and would like to see it in a future episode, you can email us at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Gabriel Jaja.